Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it is a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Tony McCaffrey, cognitive psychologist. Welcome to the show, Tony. Well, great, Aidan. It's very nice to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, and, and we've got a great show for our audience ahead. We're going to focus on three major themes. We'll roll with them as we go. But before we even get in there, Tony, it'd be great to, if you would tell our audience what you do. Yes. Well, my research is all about creativity and innovation and problem solving, specifically how people get stuck while they're solving problems and innovating and how to get them unstuck. And I have the privilege of also teaching at a school. Eagle Hill School in Massachusetts that uh, is a high school for students with learning differences. And I have amazing um, stories about how I have helped them notice some of their gifts and uh, strong abilities that other people, other schools have not noticed. And the final thing is I do have a company on the side that I'm a part of that helps uh, businesses uh, get unstuck when they come to us and they're stuck on a particular problem. Brilliant. Well, well we're, we're going to focus on the last one first. So just to explain to the audience, this is how I came across your work. I was writing an article on functional fixedness, and I'm going to release that actually in line with, with our interview today. And I came across some great articles on you. Every time there was an article written online, you were the common denominator and some of the some of the solutions that you had to, to for people to overcome functional fixedness. So I suppose before we even get to the solutions, it'd be great if you would, Tony, explain the concept of functional fixedness. Yes, functional fixedness is a very common way people get stuck and they focus on the one particular use of the object in front of them. So, for example, if you're looking at an electric plug that you would plug into the wall, people think, well, it's a metal prongs go into the wall and it's for conducting electricity. And that's all they think about. But in a pinch, it could become something else. At least in the United States, our plugs are uh, rectangular and flat and metal, and they could become a screwdriver in a particular situation. So that's an example of people just noticing the the designed use of an object and it, it blocks seeing many other options that the object could be used for. And, and that's something, Tony, while that's a functional way of thinking about it, this is something that companies are faced with every day, leaders are faced with every day, employees within companies where on a, on a grander scale, they can't see other uses for technology they have, for people they have, et cetera. And you've discovered ways for people to break that psychological inertia. One of the best examples that I'd share with business is, of course, the famous sinking of the Titanic. And it was not reported that anyone considered the iceberg. They were fixated on lifeboats wooden floating things, and they didn't consider, well, 
What about other floating things? And there are many things in the boat, wood planks, dining room tables, steamer trunks, car tires, but also the iceberg itself. And it was a classic case of it really being a life and death um, situation in which they probably could have saved more people. But I'm not judging them because they were under a high amount of stress and stress tends to uh, take creativity way down. But business managers see a lot in that example for their own situations like, wow, we we have things that we are not noticing right now. In a way, you could call it that where companies are failing, companies are being disrupted over and over. Yes, they have skills, but by being so expert in what they do, they can't see wider than what the, and I suppose this is what the functional fix is, they can't see wider than what their expertise is in. Right. So in my dissertation, I came up with this effective method to counter functional fixedness. And of course, it's got an academic name, the generic parts technique, but really it's just describing things very generically. So in the Titanic example, instead of describing things as a lifeboat, uh, you would describe them as, as wooden floating things. Um, try to get rid of all these names like lifeboats. You would describe the iceberg as a large surface, you know, so many feet, meters out of the water um, that is floating and so big. And you would describe the electric plug, the end of it, as these metallic um flat, rectangular pieces of metal. So when you get to this generic description, it's like peeling the layers of an onion where you just keep noticing more and more of the raw thing in front of you instead of um, what we tend to use it for. How does that then, Tony, how do you get leaders to apply that then to their businesses? I use this generic parts technique, this generic description in side a larger kind of framework or platform and basically it's called brain swarming and it's a silent method and a very visual method where you put the goal of the problem at the top of your graph suppose it's i'll go to another example um, that we worked on reduced concussions in american football players and so we put reduced concussions at the top of the graph and at the bottom of the graph, we put all the resources we knew about the helmets and the uniforms and the cranium and the brain. And then what we tend to do is have people redescribe the goal in as many ways as possible. They'll reduce concussions. If you use a thesaurus and some basic um, engineering knowledge, you come up with things like lessen trauma and uh, reduce shock. And then you get into more other things like uh, minimize force. And we came upon this thing, repel energy. And when we looked, no one had noticed repel energy before because when we Googled concussions, repel energy, basically there were no hits. And so we knew if you want to be innovative, you should go where other people are, have not gone before, what they are overlooking. 
And eventually we came upon a solution where rappel is closely associated with magnets and we took, we magnetized the helmets, the same pole, so they didn't want to be near each other. And tests showed that in our lab that when the helmets got close to each other, they kind of slowed down and they kind of uh, diverted and went off to the side and uh, no head-on hits happened, just glancing blows. So overall, the technique at the when you're rewording the goal is to play with all kinds of synonyms of the main structure or the main words of the goal, and you will come upon um, unexplored pathways, and that is a very solid method that managers can use to uh, flesh out uh, their goal and the problem they're working on. So if, if you think about that way, so that's that's at a leadership level. And we had the great Bill Zerowitz on the show before, and Bill has written a book called Excellent Sheep. And, and we talked on that show about how this, the problem starts actually at a young age, where we get all our imagination is, is stopped out of us through college and through school. And people who think differently are actually almost seen as strange or outcasts or outliers in society. And I think this leads nicely to the work you're doing with with kids in Oak Hill because you're spotting talents in people like like you have reframed I suppose language with with senior executives and leaders in business. You're mm-hmm. doing the same thing with children who have been made feel that they're less when they're actually gifted. And I'd love I'd love to look at that Tony because the work you're doing there, it's almost like you're getting to the source of the problem as mm-hmm. well as fixing the symptom of the problem as well. Right. I have so, just finished an interesting experiment where I gave uh, my students <clears throat> this uh, aha problem, this little puzzle, and where you have to notice something that's commonly overlooked or obscure, as I call it. And my students, uh, 43% of them solved this puzzle. And then I took the puzzle. I was invited to give a talk at a high-tech company here in Massachusetts. And there were 20 PhDs who were researchers, either computer scientists or physicists who were in the room. I gave them the same puzzle. And only one out of the 20 solved it, 5%. So you have 5% versus 43%. And I pondered this for a long time. And the, the PhD researchers were highly expert in their field. And they were very, they, they, they were very analytical and they could uh, analyze something all day long. But innovation requires thinking differently. And my students, do this naturally, and no one has told them before that this is a real gift, and the world needs this gift. Just for for our audience, what age are these kids? In the U.S. method, uh, it would be eighth grade through twelfth grade, so thirteen through eighteen. Thirteen to eighteen year old kids beating PhD students, forty three percent to five percent. Five. Yep. And then I gave it to the, my faculty, my fellow colleagues here, 
and 18% of them solved it. So they had never <laughs> encountered a task, my colleagues, in which their students were better than they were at doing it. Because when you teach algebra, you teach grammar, the teacher is always naturally better. But when you teach, when you give, show them these innovative problems to let their creativity go and think differently about it, they, they outshine the adults. And it's, it's really astounding. And, um, and how do you, that, that work, Tony, must be so rewarding to see. You must see some immense pride from those kids who have been told that they're less for most of their lives. Educationally, they've been told. Academically, they've been told, you guys, you know, you're, you're failing. But you're failing to fall in line with the rest of the world when we actually need these kids, these gifted kids, to shine in this world. Uh, yes, they, uh, I've, I've started a new group we call the Innovation Group. And to help these kids empower these students to realize how powerful their minds are. And what we do is we go out into the local community and we help businesses that are stuck on a problem. We help nonprofits. We help local town governments. Um, and even solve problems on campus. And the, the students never disappoint. They come up with very, um, novel solutions that the adults haven't come upon. And it really empowers the students and it gives, it's really education for the adults to see, oh my gosh, I may know more, many more facts than these students, but they have something that I don't have. And the Harvard Business Review, uh, a couple months ago, had a very nice article on what well, they call it neurodiversity. I'm calling it learning differences, but they're using the term neurodiversity. And they came upon the, the notion that there's a lot of a growing number of companies that are changing their hiring practices because they're discovering that people with learning differences, whether they're dyslexia or ADHD, they're able to solve the company's toughest problems. And so they're changing their hiring practices so these people can get hired and then they're supporting them and accommodating them and helping them with the social skills they need to work effectively in the company. So there's, there's beginning to be, there's beginning a change in mindset, and we're just at the beginning of really appreciating what this uh, diversity means. I love this, Tony, because you're giving people a chance where they haven't been given a chance before. It kind of reminds me of sport. If the kid isn't tall enough or big enough, they don't make the football team. And, you know, over over in Europe and, and you know, even South Southern Hemisphere, in New, New Zealand is one of the biggest is the best club in the world, the best team in the world at, at rugby, the sports rugby. And I love what they do there. And, and if you think of replace physicality with mentality here, and what they do is they play by weight rather than playing by age group over there. So kids who are smaller at a younger age get to hone skills and develop their skills at a young age so that they'll actually stay in the sport longer. And then they realize, then they grow hope and they grow confidence and then they actually make it through to the national team. 
and and people are always surprised. Oh, how are New Zealand such a good team? And you look at stuff like that, and you're going to come. Well, they're innovating. They're innovating in different ways. They're thinking differently at a strategic level, if you want to put it that way, for a country. And then you you take that example, uh, you know, in your words, generify it, and then apply it to a mentality. And you kind of go, well, it's the same thing with mental, with, with neurodiversity. These kids who don't fit in, they're square pe- pegs in a round hole, are made felt that they don't fit in and they lose confidence and they end up in, in jobs that aren't fitting for their mentality. And you are releasing them and freeing them and giving them confidence. It's just magnificent work. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's very satisfying. and. Yeah, I uh, I just feel absolute joy every time I um, uncover an ability, some ability of spatial reasoning and to you know, or, or visual imagination, and able to do all kinds of things in their mind in a visual way that others can't do, and uh, it gives me great joy to when this happens, and it happens fairly often actually. So let, I got a great job. Yeah, for, for sure. Let, let's call out a few of those those uh, examples, Tony, because, you know, you often don't hear of these examples. They don't get enough airtime, in my view. And I'd love you to, you know, celebrate some of these kids and let us know about, you know, what what skills they have. So so maybe some parent or some teacher might spot this and go, you know what, I see that in Johnny or I see that in Mary mm. or Jenny or whatever. And let's release that skill. Yeah, so I'll give you a couple examples. I I I just use first names. So uh let's see. So I have a student Jack who definitely has ADHD and I have a lot of metal puzzles in my classroom in which you have to they're entangled. There's all these parts that are entangled with each other. And I have never found a puzzle that Jack cannot Dis- disentangle in a matter of minutes and I watch him um, and he explains his steps and he just I, I can't follow his the way he thinks and he just knows that how to take these pieces apart and how to put them back together and they're I so I'm working with him to f- discover you know how can he use this in his life this amazing ability I tell you what, man, he'd do well at Christmas time untangling Christmas lights across the world. (laughs) Yeah, I have another student. His name is Eric, and he's great at finding patterns. And I gave him a problem. There's a famous mathematician, Carl Gauss, who's got a lot of things named after him. And the story goes, when Gauss was 10 years old, his teacher was punishing the class so he made the class add up all the numbers between 1 and 100. 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 and on and on. Well, the teacher noticed that Gauss was done in just a few minutes, and he went over and saw that he had found a pattern and wrote down a little equation and had the answer right away. Well, I gave the same problem to Eric, and... Um, it didn't he didn't solve it in 10 minutes maybe like Gauss did but he came back the next day after thinking about this he said most of the evening and he wrote this little formula on the board and my jaw just dropped I mean oh my goodness he 
he wrote down the exact formula that this world-class mathematician, prodigy, genius, had written down. And so his ability to, Eric's ability to detect patterns is just, in numbers in this case, is just off the charts. And uh, his parents really appreciated this story I had to tell them. Absolutely. And, and Tony, take those two kids. In a traditional school, what would be seen as the symptom? You know, so the kids, you know, ADHD, they're restless. They're looking out the window, whatever that is, you know, you know, so what, what I'm trying to do here is go, look, see the talent here. If you just unlock it, if you give it, if you enable it, but the way they're viewed in a traditional world is X. What is that X? Yeah, I think the X is a couple things. I think in Jack's case, um, with his ADHD, he needed something to do with his hands. And once he had some, and once he'd had something tactile to work on, he could focus on this thing. And without something tactile like that, that was more abstract, he would have trouble focusing. I think the other thing that's going on is there's a lot of boredom, quite honestly. Now, the students might not name it as such, but they are in classrooms, maybe in previous schools where they're very passive and they're having to memorize this process in math or memorize these vocabulary words and it doesn't engage them. And when I tell them I have a really tough problem or a really tough metal puzzle for you, they get challenged and engaged. Or if I have a problem that this famous mathematician solved when he was a child, see what you can do with it. It's a very different type of them rising to the occasion as opposed to, okay, now we got to learn the next um, process in math that you have to show that you're competent and repeat it again and again and again. So I think boredom and I think in reaching something that's, that they know is challenging, that they know is engaging, and then they, they, Come to meet it. I, that's the best I can explain it right now, I think. Yeah, no, that explains it really well because you fast forward in life, right? So par- parking these gifted kids and you you fast forward and you take the rest of the kids who have all been trained the exact same, trained to think the same, have the same expectations from their parents to l- life works like this. You go to college, you get, you know, you, you're, you're saddled with student debt. You go to work, you start as an apprenticeship, you go through the apprenticeship and you fall in line and you do everything the same way. Meanwhile, you have forces at play such as artificial intelligence taking rote tasks, which a lot of these kids are trained to do. And then you have, in a way, you have two tracks. So you have the track of of the kids you're working with, the gifted kids with, with brilliant minds. Then you have the track of the kids who are all trained to be the same and do certain road tasks. And then you have a third track, which is the, the fourth industrial revolution, where AI is, is getting to such a, a strength that it's actually threatening and replacing human roles, especially the ones in bracket two where they're rote trained tasks. Now, the, the reason I'm putting this together is like this. This is the third track. The third track we wanted to talk about, which is your work with creativity and your recognition that both humans and machines are are limited when it comes to creativity. 
Yes. So my first career was in artificial intelligence when I was in my 20s. And I left that field because I just felt when I wrote a program that was kind of clunky (laughs) and it was more rigid. I wanted to have this smooth, fluent, intelligent behavior, and it would always act in this kind of rigid, clunky manner. And I said, something's wrong here. And I I left the field and I went into psychology, the human side of creativity. But I kept thinking about uh, what that try to quantify what was going on with computers. And just this past year, I published a proof, the first mathematical proof ever, that there is a limit to how creative a computer can be. And... So the first kind of limit about um, computers and innovation. And it boils down to that uh, the possible interactions that an object can be involved in and the possible effects that can be produced in those interactions and the possible features that can come out of all these interactions and these effects that are produced is such a large intractable number that not even our fastest supercomputers can day, can, today can even touch and explore that vast number of possibilities. And of course, new ones are coming every day because the patent offices around the world are receiving more and more uh, patents for new widgets and new objects and new things like that. And my object could interact with these things that are invented tomorrow. And that's a whole new set of possible things that could interact with and a whole new set of possible effects. For example, I'll come down to earth a little bit now. Suppose you spilled hot candle wax on your smartphone screen. Now, we don't know, will it ruin the smartphone screen? Or will it um, change our the precision of when we touch it and we kind of have this very vague picture of where the, our finger is? Or can we produce huh, impressionistic art instead of this exact location? We don't know exactly the form, the, the effect of this. And that's just one example where... Let's interact the uh, uh, smartphone with all these new things that have been invented and old things, and it can produce some surprising effects. I do believe, you know, you talked about Kasparov and, you know, being beaten by Big Blue and IBM and all this kind of thing. And because we hear these celebrated examples all the time, and they're the ones that are heralded as though machines are taking over. But in a way, this human creativity is so vast because it, it, goes the speed of the human brain etc cetera, etc cetera, is, is so vast but also you know if you if you get deeper into the world of david bohm and einstein etc and you're kind of going well there's a deeper there's a deeper power that creativity mm-hmm. calls upon that you harness that that that's something that a machine can't harness right and that so um so my proof shows a limit um to a computer innovation a general limit. And then on the human side, we know 
There, we know a lot of our stumbling blocks. Functional fixedness is just one of them. But there's a whole list of other things that we get, ways we get stuck when problem solving. And psychologists have named this whole list of things. And so what I've tried to do in the company I run is create this nice interface between humans and computers. And the computer is programmed to help counteract the limits of the human. And the human helps counteract the limits of the machine. And so I'm in the beginning phases of testing this kind of synergy between the human and machine. And the initial results um, point to that this um, partnership is more creative than either one could be on their own. And so I'm very hopeful about humans having a prominent role, machines having their place, and uh, working together as opposed to threatening <laughs> threatening to take over everything from us. Yeah, and, and you know, I... I, I... I started reading some old sci-fi, Asmanov and all this kind of stuff. And I was, it kind of got me thinking that when you see sci-fi, you read sci-fi and you, I mean, just take Terminator, for example, machines taken over. It almost gives people a benchmark in the future. It's kind of like a functional fix, fixedness in a way where you kind of go, well, that's, I can visualize that because I've seen the movie. And then in a way we, we, move towards it because we can see it and we almost enable it and you know the the bigger question is to stand back and kind of go okay we can do all this stuff with ai but the bigger question is why are we doing it right and i i used to when i first entered artificial intelligence as a field i was uh in that camp in which i'd seen all these sci-fi movies and i couldn't imagine a limit to the machine or why we shouldn't do it. Um, but um, it grew, my experience grew, and I became more and more, something's going on here, something's wrong, and I was able to formalize it to articulate what uh, one one limit at least and why machines and humans should work together. You're talking about working together, and, you know, I, I know your, your field of expertise, you, you've been looking at creativity but there's many studies to show, for example, detecting cancer, that AI will detect in X amount of time, but will make X amount of errors. A human will detect in Y amount of time, make Y amount of errors. And But together, that will be much, much less and much, much better. And and I suppose that's a, a road task. But you're actually, your field of expertise is actually going, okay, well, that park that over there. I'm actually looking at creativity as the as the synergy where we work together with the machines uh yeah and i'm you know i'm rethinking this all the time and the more experience i have with uh my students with learning differences and some of the amazing visualization capabilities they have to manipulate objects in their mind and notice patterns um, I'm rethinking about maybe there are other limits that the machine has along the lines of the human mind's ability to um, visualize relationships and notice patterns. So I'm not done thinking about the limits of computers and how machines and computers should relate to each other.
it's still a hot yeah. topic for me. You know, I mentioned to you we had Naftali Tishby on the show before, who who's a brilliant scientist who's discovered breakthroughs in machine learning. He himself has ADHD, and he discovered the gift of that that gave him a way of thinking that he didn't know it was different until much, much later in his life. And he wasn't diagnosed so much, much later in his life. Then a few weeks ago, we had on Dominic Frisby, who's written brilliant books on life after the state and, and Bitcoin. And the reason I mentioned these two guys in particular is they call out the fact that in this world where disruption is rife and companies are crying out for different thinkers, and I love what you said about recruitment policies now shifting to neurodiversity, but in this world, it's going to college is actually not as different as it was years ago. So Dominic Frisbee said this 30 years ago, going to college, you were an, you were an outlier. It was different. You know, you were, you were privileged. And then you got these kind of elite jobs or different types of jobs. Now, the bar to go to college is much, much less. But the problem is everybody's being trained the exact same. And then the, the people who don't go to college or the people who take a different path are the ones who are actually the, are the, the ones with the advantage. Right. I, I have, I mean, I read historical accounts and I'm, you know, some of our, in retrospect, our greatest minds had trouble with the traditional school model, whether it was in the early years of schooling. Um, and um, I think there are many brilliant minds among us who tragically, I'll use the word tragically, may never have their gifts noticed and appreciated. And to me, that's very sad. So I feel like a new mission now to <clears throat> help people notice their gifts as young as possible. And I even, um, some of the parents, you know, genetically, the, <laughs> the parents of our students um, have some commonalities and they have some of the similar challenges and I see them discovering or owning some of their differences that um, that made them successful uh, and then helping to advocate for their child to get them the help early so they don't have to feel like an outsider and suffer uh, like they did so amen um, man. And, and you know that that's that's one of the reasons I, I really want to call out this on the show. If there's parents out there, you know, recognize these things as, as gifts. And I, I know that's difficult when the world calls for people to act in a certain way. And parents are scared. They're, they're scared that their kid will be bullied or they'll be seen as strange or they'll fail or they won't get a job. But if it's harnessed like the way you were doing it, Tony, there's a huge opportunity for these kids ahead and we need to help them. And, and, you know, it's like that saying about the farmer, a good farmer doesn't grow the crops. He prepares the soil for the crops to grow. We mm. need to do that for these kids. Yeah, very much so. And so I feel like I'm on a mission with um, the school I work at very much. Uh, they're, they're leading the mission and I just joined them a few years ago <clears throat> of trying to transform education and um, in a more general way, now we work with a particular population that has, 
seems to have a lot of difficulty in normal public education, but I, I still think that there's a lot of students out there <clears throat> who can do okay in a more traditional classroom setting, but could really excel. So there's lots of experimentation that's happening <clears throat> with different school models of getting, having uh, students make more things called the maker movement, where they're more proactive in designing and solve, trying to solve real world problems in their community and having a connection with the outside community. So not thinking of the classroom as isolated, where they learn these skills for, um, so that they can use them much later, but having them um, engage in this whole open-ended problem-solving process that's iterative and more open-ended, and you, you don't know the right answer. And the teacher doesn't know the right answer at the beginning, and that's scary for a lot of educators to get, try to guide them in this process when they just used to um, knowing the answer and guiding the students to the correct answer. And so there needs to be a, mind, uh, a shift in mindset. But there's lots of uh, experimental schools that are popping up. <clears throat> and uh, I'm, I'm very glad to be at Eagle Hill, which is, which is one of them. And Tony, so, so there'll be some people listening to this show, and this will resonate hugely with them. Can they get involved or can they help or can, can they get in touch with you some way? Uh, certainly, I, yeah, I, um, I'm very open to conversations, and this is becoming more and more my mission. So people are passionate or concerned with their with their child if it's very personal to them. Uh, my, um, I'll give you my Eagle Hill email address. So my name's Tony McCaffrey. So it's T. McCaffrey, M-C-C-A-F-F-R-E-Y, at Eagle Hill, one word, dot school. So Tony McCaffrey at Eagle Hill dot school. And I'll be glad to um, share my mission and uh, get more people on board and hear what other people are up to. Brilliant, Tony. Well, well I'll, I'll put that up on the uh, website, etc. and I'll link to it. And I'll also link to the... I loved your article, and I, I I failed to say this actually. Your article in the Harvard Business Review on the Titanic and on functional fishing is, is fantastic, and there's great illustrations. So I'll link to that as well, and several other articles and videos, etc., on brain swarming. Tony, it's, it, last question for you is: your your student, or you have a young kid, or who's deciding on what study or what to take in college? or deciding to go to college at all, what kind of advice do you give for people going into that kind of phase in life? Well, I give two bits of advice. One is people are saying more and more that the jobs that are going to be available in five or ten years may not have been invented yet. So it's harder and harder to prepare for a job or even a career and I would say some of the most important skills that a lot of CEOs are looking for, abilities to communicate well, to collaborate well. Innovation requires collaboration with diverse people and to 
be how to be creative. And so oh, knowing this kind of open-ended problem-solving process and how to iterate and make a design and get feedback and how to be aware of your shortcomings and some of the psychology literature for you to overcome when you get stuck, those would be crucial skills. And I would say that the other thing is I I tell you, you know, I've I'm on my, I don't know, third career. I was in AI and then I was in other before I was here. And so I just, you know, it sounds simple, but follow your passion, develop a passion and follow it. And I don't feel like I have jobs. I have missions that I'm on. And then I find jobs that correspond to those missions where I can keep my passion alive. I love that, man. That's that's beautiful. And it's something that I, you see all the time. And we had Whitney Johnson on before. And she, is a, she wrote a fantastic book called Disrupt Yourself. And it's about this. It's about constantly disrupting yourself, which may mean, you know, dumping a career. Or, or it may look on your CV that you're a bit random. and You've jumped from here to there. But that's what gives the beauty of different thinking. Because you can, it's almost like, jumping into somebody else's shoes and seeing the problem totally different, isn't it? Oh, yes. I <clears throat> I, I have degrees in different fields in philosophy and psychology and computer science, and I'm constantly making connections between the fields. And so if you have a an interesting, crooked, some people would say crooked pathway through life, it's very interesting and you can make unique connections and have unique perspectives that others can't. I love it. And hence your, your business, your, your, where can people get in touch with you about that business, Tony, as well? You, you mentioned the business with helping businesses think differently, et cetera. Oh yes. Yeah. Then they can, uh, if they're interested in the business side of our brainstorming techniques and how to do, Group problem solving. Brilliant. Okay. And, and you're on LinkedIn as well, which is where I connected to originally. Oh, so, yeah. Um, Definitely. Definitely. But, well, Tony, it's been an absolute pleasure with you. Really uh, great, great talking to you. And we wish you the very best with all the missions. I'm sure we'll be in touch again when uh, you've come up with the next, uh, the next thing. We'll maybe touch base in a few months or six months or so. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Tony McCaffrey, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Aiden. Uh, great talking with you.